The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship. You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to the Wiley Connect podcast. My name is Rick Sofield, and I'm a partner in Wiley's International Trade and National Security Practice Group. I'm joined today by my former colleague, Loyani Gal, who serves as Deputy Director of the Department of Justice's Foreign Investment Review Section, where he's also known as the Chair of Team Telecom. Today we are going to be discussing the evolution of Team Telecom, beginning with a brief history of the working group and continuing with a conversation about some of the latest technological developments with which Team Telecom is currently grappling. Some of the specific topics we will explore include Team Telecom's recommendation that the Federal Communications Commission deny China Mobile's 214 authorization based on national security concerns, the pending Sprint T-Mobile merger, evolving concerns regarding submarine cable and broadcast licensing, and Team Telecom's increasing activity in ensuring compliance with risk mitigation agreements. Lastly, we will discuss the future of Team Telecom, including efforts to improve the process and its anticipated role in pending supply chain regulation. Loyan, thank you so much for joining me today. Team Telecom has made some news over the past year. What is it? What's Team Telecom? Where did it come from? So Team Telecom, as it's known colloquially, is a combination of the Department of Justice, uh, along with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as the Departments of Homeland Security and the Departments of Defense. And these agencies work together with regards to applications that are before the Federal Communications Commission for certain authorizations and licenses. Uh, We assist the Federal Communications Commission in assessing the national security and law enforcement aspects of the uh, public interest standard that the FCC applies when it decides whether it's going to uh, grant an application. So what types of licenses is Team Telecom reviewing? I would say the majority of the licenses are known as what are are known as Section 214, which is a part of the uh, Communications Act of 1934, Section 214 authorizations. And those are the authorizations that allow entities to provide telecommunication services. Specifically, the ones that we look at are international Section 214 authorizations. And those are applications to be able to provide services from the United States to foreign points. And in order to be able to do that, you then have to be able to interconnect in the United States as well. And so, Applications that involve foreign investment, usually it's at the uh, 10% threshold, or sometimes are owned by foreign governments, uh, entities that are owned by foreign governments that are applying for these applications, these authorizations in front of the FCC, we review those applications. In addition, we look at what are called submarine cable landing licenses. Those are licenses that allow companies to connect cables, submarine 
cables to the United States from foreign points. And the vast majority of international communications travels through submarine cables, about 99% of telephone data, all of that travels through those submarine cables. And then we get what are called Section 310, which is another part of the Communications Act petitions. uh, And those involve wireless licenses, satellite licenses, microwave licenses. And those specifically are requests by companies to be able to have more than 25% foreign investment or ownership in the companies that are going to have those licenses. They petition the FCC to be able to go above that 25% threshold. We review those and we get a lot of, uh, in those applications, broadcast licenses as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, You mentioned the public interest standard that the FCC looks at. What specific elements of the public interest standard is Team Telecom focused on? Sure. So uh, in the public interest standard that the FCC is looking at, it's looking at whether it's within the public interest to provide the authorization or the license to the entity uh, in order to be able to access the airwaves, communication lines, things of that nature. And so when the FCC makes a referral, they actually make a referral to the executive branch, not specifically to Team Telecom. They make it to the broader executive branch to include the State Department, the Department of Commerce, the U.S. Trade Representative, the Office of Science and Technology, and the White House. And the purpose of that is they want input from the executive branch as to the national security law enforcement, economic, trade, diplomatic equities of the United States, how those are impacted potentially by them granting the application. We at Team Telecom, again, DOJ, DHS, and DOD, concentrate specifically on the national security and law enforcement aspects. So that's really interesting. Some of our listeners may be more familiar with the governmental review process called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Team Telecom seems to have a broader mandate than CFIUS. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, uh, you know, CFIUS looks at the risk that's arising out of foreign investment, the risk that arises out of the transaction itself. Whereas in Team Telecom, we're looking at one aspect of the public interest, right? The national security law enforcement aspect of that. So what we're assessing is what is the risk associated with entity X having a significant ownership or investment in a telecommunications company, in a radio station license, radio station company, having access to a submarine cable landing license. Those are the aspects that we're looking at specifically. And so we're looking at, for instance, who the investor is, what the makeup of the company is, who are the individuals that have control to have decision-making responsibilities. We then transition to what services are going to be provided, what equipment's going to be used, just the, the litany of things you would do to kind of assess risks that would be associated with national security and law enforcement. I referenced recent news articles mentioning Team Telecom that we've seen over the last year. And some of those articles talked in particular about Team Telecom's role in recommending to the FCC that commission deny a 214 license to China Mobile. And to my knowledge, that was the first time that uh, the Team Telecom and the FCC had uh, denied a license. Uh, based on national security concerns. Can you talk a little bit about the role that Team Telecom played, how the recommendation came in, came to fruition, and what factors were considered by Team Telecom in coming to its recommendation? So I think uh, some helpful context about the process will, will be able to provide you know listeners uh, a better sense of how 
things unfolded. So China Mobile International USA, which is a U.S. subsidiary and is an indirect subsidiary of a Chinese state-owned enterprise, had applied for an international Section 214 authorization uh, to be able to provide telecommunication services between the United States and foreign points, specifically China. And that application was filed with the FCC. It is then that the FCC notified the executive branch about this application because it met its um, foreign investment or ownership threshold. At that point, the team telecom agencies, specifically DOJ, requested that the FCC take that application off of its streamlined process. Once it was taken off the streamlined process, the team telecom agencies engaged with China Mobile. And that engagement lasted several years, which allowed the agencies and China Mobile to a certain extent to exchange information, have a better understanding of the services they were going to provide, how they were going to provide those services, who they were going to partner up with, and things of that nature. So it was during that process of the back and forth with China Mobile that we were able to gather the necessary information to to make an assessment as to what was the national security law enforcement risk associated with if China Mobile was to get this 214 authorization. Eventually, we made a recommendation to the FCC, which was the first of its nature, and and that recommendation was to deny the application uh, due to insurmountable national security and law enforcement risks, that no combination or set of mitigation terms would overcome the national security law enforcement risks associated with China Mobile having that uh, FCC authorization. Now, that recommendation was a executive branch recommendation. It was led by Team Telecom and DOJ, uh, but it involved, uh, it was uh, the recommendation of, again, DOJ, DHS, DOD, the State Department, Commerce, USTR. Um, And so we made that recommendation to the FCC in the summer of 2018. And then in May of 2019, the FCC issued its order denying um, the application. And again, one thing that should be emphasized, the FCC is an independent executive branch agency. It's made up of a chairman and commissioners who are uh, nominated by the president, appointed or confirmed by the Senate. And so they make their own independent analysis as to whether or not they should grant a a license or authorization. But they do defer to the national security law enforcement expertise of certain uh, executive branch agencies. Thank you. Uh, That's really helpful background, understanding how the agencies interact and arrive at their decisions uh, through the Team Telecom process. How does Team Telecom fit within DOJ's broader China initiative, which we've read about recently? Uh, There was a Washington Times article from last week where Adam Hickey, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General, uh, talked a little bit about the China initiative and how Team Telecom's uh, one element of that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what role you see Team Telecom playing uh, in the China initiative going forward? Yeah, so I'll take it away from Team Telecom and talk more about the Foreign Investment Review section, which is the uh, section of the National Security Division that I work in and that obviously you used to work in. And within, you know, what's known as fears, um, we... Sounds like a vicious name. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You you worked under it for a while, so you had the opportunity to come up with a different acronym. Um, and so, you know, we, we from, and from that perspective doing what we're responsible for doing uh, fit into, as as uh, Mr. Hickey pointed out, just the broader Department of Justice 
initiative. We do that in how we review the applications that are referred to us by the FCC. Uh, we look at, you know, we treat each application on its own merits, but we understand that there are broader issues involved. And so we assess risk uh, based on what the current policy of the United States is. I, I think we fit into that initiative mostly by doing what we're already been tasked to do. I'd like to talk a little bit about submarine cables, one of the uh, elements of Team Telecom that you had referenced before. There are a series of pending submarine cable landing licenses that are listed on the FCC docket, and those authorizations seem to take a little bit longer sometimes uh, for their review, perhaps some of the 214s take. Can you talk a little bit about some of the unique features of Team Telecom's review of submarine cables that makes decisions in that space more difficult? Sure. So uh, submarine cable landing licenses are interesting in that you know, we've talked about the Section 214 authorizations, and that was what the China Mobile application, that's what they were seeking authorization to provide those telecommunication services. With the submarine cable landing license, you're, asked, you're applying to the FCC for permission to land a cable in the United States, not necessarily to provide those services that the cable is going to facilitate, but to physically connect the cable to the United States. And that falls under a different statute than the Communications Act. It falls under the Cable Landing License Act of 1921. So it's actually an older statute than uh, the Communications Act and, and the statute that existed before the FCC itself was was created in 1934. The cable landing licenses present unique and challenging issues that need to be assessed and addressed. For one, we're talking about uh, a closer nexus to international companies in that, you know, at least with the telecommunication services, many of the companies are either U.S. companies or U.S. subsidiaries. On the cable landing licenses, you have what are consortiums of companies that get together and uh, agree that they are going to own and operate a cable that's going to connect the United States to another part of the world. And usually the other part of the cable uh, is where those companies are going to be involved, right? So you have these foreign companies uh, working with U.S. companies uh, to be able to connect these cables between the United States and a foreign country. So that leads to, unlike most Section 214 authorizations where you're dealing with one company, or sometimes in a 214 situation, you have a transfer of control where you have one company is being acquired uh, by another company and they need to transfer their 214 authorization from one company to the other. You know, you might have two companies involved in that transaction. Uh, but when you're talking about the cables, you're talking about multiple companies applying on the same uh, application to be able to operate this cable in the United States. So we need to be able to assess, you know, the U.S. companies with the foreign companies, how they're going to work together, what are their um, arrangements with regards to who operates the cable, how is the uh, cable operated, um, are there portions of the cable that are specific to the investment of a, a company. So a lot of these cables are portioned by investment. So company A may have 20% of the cable, company B may have 30% of the cable. What services is company A going to provide in their portion of the cable versus what services is company B going to provide in their portion of the cable? And so, you know, with all of those variables, it can be very complicated. 
right now there are four cables that are pending that would connect the United States with China. And the last cable to be cleared that uh, connects the United States directly to China uh, cleared back in January of 2017. Are we seeing a change in that relationship? Are there policies or no-goal rules that companies should be aware of, of where cables can interconnect from in the United States? I'm not going to comment on any pending applications that are before the FCC or in front of us as, you know, Team Telecom. I will say that when we're looking at cables uh, and the connections, we're looking at, you know, just, okay, you start with, there's a physical, uh, you know, piece of equipment that is going to connect the United States to another country. So think about about it as a tunnel or a bridge. There's something that is going to make the United States connected to another foreign entity. That in itself uh, just inherently requires an assessment of what does that mean? Um, And then when you add to it, what is going to travel through that cable, right? So if we're talking about now what we've seen um, kind of evolve in the industry where these cables started out originally as you know, being owned and operated by telecommunications companies, right, to provide uh, voice data services, you know, uh, international services. Uh, And now it's transitioning to where you're seeing a lot of information data companies starting to invest in these cables and own these cables. So you're talking about the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. That in itself brings a different set of things that need to be considered. You know, you're talking about data that's traveling through there. You're talking about personally identifiable information of U.S. customers, potentially, and you're talking about the potential for that information to travel from the United States to a foreign country. So our assessment is, one, we have a physical item that's going to connect the United States to a foreign point, and two, there's going to be a lot of valuable information flowing through that cable. How do we assess there are what the national security risks are and whether or not those national security risks can be mitigated. Do you see a role for Team Telecom in supporting U.S. businesses? And, and you mentioned that um, we're seeing cables being built by data companies as opposed to you know traditionally carriers would build cables. Um, is it part of Team Telecom's role in evaluating risk and determining whether to address risks in, in a particular transaction, what the benefit to the U.S. IT sector would be? So it's it's not our primary issue that we look at, but obviously we don't operate in a vacuum. You know, uh, we, we understand that, you know, American companies are innovative and are leaders in technology and the ability to provide those services uh, are an important part of the U.S. economy. So that's, that just goes without saying what, but what our what we're tasked with uh, as team telecom specifically is to look at what are the national security risks associated with that. So in the event, as I mentioned, you know, coming back to China mobile and the international section 214 authorization, that analysis also applies there, right? You know, you're, uh, you're talking about allowing a company to be able to provide international services that can help bolster commerce, trade, all kinds of things. But uh, one thing I like to harken back to is what I said was that was an executive branch recommendation in China Mobile. And so that was the recommendation that involved Team Telecom as well as the State Department, Department of Commerce, the U.S. Trade Representative. 
if and when we're going to make a recommendation that's going to impact something as important as a submarine cable landing license, there are processes set forth that allow us to be able to get input and assessment from those other agencies to be able to make sure that we can try to balance the different equities. Thank you. That's really helpful. And it helps uh, sort of um, illustrate the various factors that go into a decision uh, by the executive branch. You know, the inclusion of USTR to look at the trade part of the public interest analysis, the inclusion of the Department of State to look at some of the diplomatic issues that may come up so that there is a holistic recommendation to the FCC from the executive branch. Another recommendation from Team Telecom that has gained some attention over the last year involves the merger of Sprint and T-Mobile that recently uh, Team Telecom has made an affirmative recommendation to the FCC. Can you talk a little bit about the process and how the process worked in that particular matter? So you're talking about a merger that was reported to be somewhere in, you know, over $26 billion transaction in which Sprint would merge with T-Mobile and the new company would be the new T-Mobile. And so in that instance, there were a number of reviews and OKs that, that those companies had to get, whether it was from the antitrust department at DOJ, uh, whether it's the FCC, whether it's state attorney generals that are reviewing those transactions. So it's, it was that just put in context like how large of a transaction it was. For Team Telecom specifically, our review involved, you know, the fact that as part of the merger, Sprint was now going to transfer control of its existing authorizations, 214 authorizations, as its existing submarine cable landing licenses and other FCC licenses. It was going to then transfer that over to the new T-Mobile. And so our review involved assessing whether there were national security and law enforcement risks associated with those authorizations and licenses moving from Sprint over to what will be the new T-Mobile. And so we conducted our national security law enforcement risk assessment, worked with our partners within the Department of Justice and also with uh, DHS and Department of Defense. And then I believe in December of 2018, we informed the Federal Communications Commission that we had no concerns with regards to the transfer of control of those FCC authorizations and licenses. Shifting to another emerging area for a team telecom, I want to talk a little bit about broadcast licenses and the issues that you're seeing there. What are some of the major areas of potential concern that team telecom is evaluating? So the way that we get broadcast licenses referred to us or before us for review is what I mentioned previously, which is the Section 310 petitions. And those are the petitions for certain licenses the FCC provides, a petition to be able to have foreign investment above a 25% benchmark uh, to be able to exceed that. And so the FCC will refer those type of licenses over to us, some of which involve broadcast licenses. When we look at broadcast licenses, I think, uh, at least since the time that I've been uh, in my position, we've only entered into one mitigation agreement with an entity that was petitioning the FCC to go above the 
uh, threshold. So it is a space that we're not as active in for purposes of mitigation or compliance uh, monitoring the same way that we are for the Section 214s or the cable landing licenses. However, the things that we look at, we look at, again, same issues, you know, who are the investors? Who are the foreign investors? What level of control are they going to have uh, in the company? And then for specific purposes of the broadcast entities, we look at, you know, how are they going to comply with FCC rules for purposes of political advertisements and things of that nature? So we just want to make sure that whoever's going to control it, we have a sense of who those people are. And then for purposes of the services that a broadcast company uh, is going to provide, uh, making sure that they're complying with the FCC rules and regulations that apply to that from from a from our perspective, from a national security law enforcement. So is the underlying concern there then with editorial content, potential for foreign propaganda or election interference and the like? Those are Those are issues that we look at, you know, making sure that these companies that control these broadcasters are not going to be uh, or use those broadcasters for nefarious purposes. Again, whether it's, you know, you know, political influence or uh, propaganda purposes, we make we want to make sure that that is not what's going to happen. So we want to make sure that there are procedures in place and that there's going to be compliance and adherence with FCC rules that address some of those issues. So, so that's kind of the, 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 what we look at and what we concentrate on with those licenses. The other is the other thing we look at that we're noticing more is that with a lot of the uh, radio stations, a lot of them provide services over apps. Uh, So you're able to access your, um, your radio stations now and, and the services they provide and their content, you know, through your computer, your phone, and, you know, through the apps that they provide. So, uh, in that aspect, we, we also are starting to look at the apps themselves and, you know, um, how they address privacy issues and, you know, personally identifiable information and how they safeguard that information and who has access to that information, because that's a little bit closer to our bailiwick, uh, you know, that we usually deal with. So uh, in terms of trying to identify what types of data might be of concern, uh, the new CFIUS regs uh, talk uh, have developed a new definition called sensitive personal data uh, and have identified specific types of information which CFIUS will consider sensitive personal data. Would that be a useful guidepost for a broadcaster to use in trying to figure out whether or not it collects and maintains sensitive information that Team Telecom might be concerned about? I'm sure that's, you know, a guidepost to look at, uh, obviously, especially if you're talking about foreign investors who are trying to assess investing in the United States and then having to be uh, go through a, a review. So obviously that 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 would be one you know place that they could look at. I would also look at just how states uh, across the country address, you know, how companies are supposed to protect private uh, personal information, things of that nature. The FCC itself has what's called CPNI or customer proprietary network information uh, that telco companies are supposed to protect, you know, your, your, um, your billing information, your subscriber information, your address information. So there are different areas that, that companies can look at for, for purposes of trying to assess the best way to, to handle that issue. So you've mentioned the concept of risk mitigation 
a couple of times. Can you talk about what is risk mitigation and, um, and, and what types of mitigation measures does Team Telecom uh, seek when it, uh, it enters into these agreements? Sure. So when we're um, engaged in our process of assessing an application or a transfer of control, and as I mentioned before, we're looking at who the investors are, who the people that are going to control the company are. You know, we're looking at those individuals. Um, we're looking at the company itself, the services it's going to provide, how it's going to provide those services. And then we're looking at technical issues. We have subject matter experts that we work with. We work with our law enforcement and national security agencies to assess, you know, what type of equipment. Entities are proposing to use to provide services, whether those equipment you know are deemed trustworthy or not. Uh, so various factors are considered. Once we have a kind of big picture assessment, uh, we then ask ourselves: Okay, we've identified certain risks. Can those risks be mitigated? If so, how can they be mitigated? And that's where we start engaging in negotiating, at least in Team Telecom, what are called uh, mitigation agreements a lot of which you can find on the FCC's docket. And those will allow you to kind of look through and see the certain things that are in those agreements to address certain risks, right? So um, things such as uh, identifying who your law enforcement point of contact is going to be, who is the person that is going to be responsible for interfacing with with law enforcement when law enforcement needs to be able to serve a subpoena for information to gather evidence in an investigation, Um, you know, what equipment are you going to use to provide certain services? Uh, you know, providing notice to the government if you're going to switch from equipment that you know may not be an issue, but you're now thinking about switching to new equipment. Be, having to provide certain notices about that and engaging with Team Telecom and the government to make sure that we as the government are uh, comfortable with that. And so that's what that agreement does. It reduces those issues to paper and puts commitments on the um, FCC licensee, which the FCC has then conditioned those those mitigation conditions, that agreement on the license itself. So compliance is necessary to continue to have that FCC authorization. In addition to equipment that is used on networks, I've noticed on the FCC website, some of the more recent mitigation agreements have also include measures to uh, – that allow the government insight into uh, who particular vendors are uh, for the applicant and managed service providers and the like. So, you know, there's an evolution there, I think, of the types of things uh, Team Telecom is looking at moving forward. In addition to law enforcement point of contact, which you mentioned, equipment vendors and managed service uh, providers, are you seeing any new avenues of inquiry where uh, Team Telecom has an emerging interest? Um, I, I I wouldn't say new areas. I would say just developments in the areas you've described, right? So um, the thing about uh, what we look at, the telecommunications information sectors that we're addressing, uh, these are dynamic, uh, highly, uh, you know, uh, dynamic areas that develop very quickly as far as technology goes. And so certain technology that we've reviewed that, you know, makes sense in one setting, um, you know, you find out that there's an upgrade for that technology. Or you mentioned managed service providers, right? The the people that maintain 
the software that runs the, com- uh, the, the equipment or that can remotely access information in order to run networks. Um, who are those entities? Who are those people, right? So I don't think it's necessarily different areas that we're looking at. It's more of how the areas we're looking at are, are evolving. As an example of the evolve, uh, evolving um, or, or the way the areas are evolving in the future, uh, principal equipment in some of their earlier agreements, which I've reviewed, seem to really focus on the core of networks. Uh, with the evolution of 5G and the core moving further out to the edge, do you see Team Telecom getting increasingly interested in equipment that maybe 10 years ago would have been considered edge equipment um, and, and perhaps not as uh, uh, interesting to Team Telecom. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, the term 5G is is ubiquitous. It's what everyone talks about. It's it's where, you know, communications and telecommunications is, is, is going. Um, but that is going to be a gradual transition, right? So the same way when we went from 2G to 3G to 4G to LTE, there's still equipment out there that operates on those different generations of, of, uh, of technology. So to your point about 5G, we are looking at where is it going um, and where do we need to adjust how we do our reviews to, to have a better understanding of where that technology is going to take equipment. What are the vulnerabilities that are going to be associated with that equipment? And if 5G is going to operate further away on the edge, um, because you're going to have machines talking to each other and you're going to have networks that are basically within themselves networks, then we need to have an understanding of, you know, how is that going to work? Uh, if it's going to, move away from core physical equipment to software virtualized, you know, equipment running this technology, then, then how does that work? What is the software? Who, who controls the software? Who's going to manage the software? Um, those are the kind of things that we're looking at. In talking about 5G and Team Telecom's role evolving with the development of 5G technologies and the deployment of uh, 5G technologies, there's been an awful lot of discussion within the government writ large regarding regulation in the 5G space, and in particular supply chain regulation. The SEC has its Universal Service Fund supply chain order. There's an executive order to address ICT supply chain issues, and there's just a host of regulation out there. How does Team Telecom play? In that space, what role does Team Telecom have in either developing those regulations or enforcing them? Sure. So again, I will pivot from Team Telecom and then kind of go more into DOJ NSD fears and how we play into that. With regards to supply chain, that is an important issue for us across the board. You mentioned the uh, executive order with regards to ICT, supply chain and services, as well as the FCC order on universal service fund supply chain. And those impact both what we do at DOJ and then more so also what we do in Team Telecom. Uh, the role we play in DOJ is that we, at FEARS, since we have such an innate understanding of just telecom information services based on what we do with Team Telecom, we provide as much input as needed across the board. I mean, this is broader than just what Team Telecom does. It's just 
a broader issue. So we provide the input based on our experience and our understanding of what we do with regards to what should be considerations for supply chain vulnerabilities. What are the things that the government should be looking at across the board, whether it's procuring services for the federal government itself, whether it's what industry should be thinking about as it's making decisions with regards to certain equipment or managed services. And it's important because we're talking about decisions, talk about industry. These are decisions that have to be made well in advance of when you're going to roll out the equipment, right? You have to decide, okay, I'm transitioning this. And that's a very expensive endeavor, right? So understanding ahead of time as best as possible, okay, here are certain vendors that are going to cause us issues. Being able to identify that earlier in the process allows companies and industry to then be able to make the decisions they need to make. So we are working feverishly and working across the board and helping coordinate efforts to make sure that we're all working on the same page and understanding what the concerns are with regards to supply chain in its various areas. Can you talk a little bit about efforts that the government is making to improve the team telecom process in terms of additional transparency, if that's possible, or more expeditious reviews? What changes are afoot? So we're always looking for ways to improve Team Telecom's review process. And, you know, I say that on behalf of our colleagues at DHS and DOD. We work very hard to coordinate across three very large agencies um, to try to do these reviews as expeditiously as possible, understanding that there's investment involved, there's a need for certainty, and there's a need to make certain decisions. That, though, is balanced against what we're tasked with addressing, which are national security and law enforcement risks. So we're always figuring out better ways that we can get information from applicants, coordinate our efforts across the interagency, and kind of improve our communications with applicants to provide updates as much as possible. To the extent that at some point there will be a process that's more formal, we hope that that will happen. But until that happens, we will continue to improve the process the way we can control it. So short of applicants reviewing past recommendations by the government or mitigation agreements that are publicly available on the FCC website, what can an applicant do to learn about the process and to figure out what's entailed? The benefit of Team Telecom is that there's a lot of public information out there, especially on the FCC's docket. So there is a plethora of uh, mitigation agreements that allow you, if you look at it and say, hey, I'm in this space, this company does the same thing I do, and here's the agreement they entered into to kind of reverse engineer that and to say to yourself, okay, here are the things that understanding that there may be issues specific to that company that don't necessarily uh, apply to you as an applicant, but kind of the general issues, right? And then getting yourself prepared to be able to provide that information as soon as possible. I think a lot of times people complain about a long drawn out process with Team Telecom, but I've said this publicly, some of that is also the applicant. Sometimes applicants ask for extensions to provide information. And I understand because they need to get to their clients who may be overseas and they need to gather certain information. So there are ways that both sides can work together. And I do applaud applicants and counsel who reach out and say, what can I provide you? What can I gather? 
there's an application we just filed with the FCC that we think will come to you guys. Let us know if there's anything. You know, what really helps I've seen in the past is having meetings sometimes, if, especially if you think it's going to be a complex issue, having a meeting ahead of time to kind of identify, introduce the company, the applicants to Team Telecom and identify specific issues. And having that meeting before the application is even filed with the FCC? Yeah. I think as close in time probably is better because sometimes if you have a meeting with us and then the FCC takes, for whatever reason, a long time to send that application, you know, something might fall through the cracks or be forgotten about because of just the press of business. So to the extent it can be timed as close as possible to when you think the FCC may be referring a matter to Team Telecom, that's probably the most advantageous. But regardless, and I say you don't have to do this for every matter saying if there are complex issues you're aware of or there are extenuating circumstances you want to get in front of that you think will be issues, having a meeting and flagging those and identifying those are helpful. There's a recent bill that was published by Senator Scott that would require the FCC and Team Telecom to review existing authorizations involving foreign government ownership and to re-review those, the grant of those authorizations. Is that something Team Telecom has done before? Is that something that's even within Team Telecom's ambit to re-review an application that's already been granted? So I won't comment on any pending legislation that's been proposed or drafted. I will say for purposes of existing FCC authorizations, we monitor the ones that we have agreements with and we have a significant amount of mitigation agreements with uh, FCC license holders. And so in those specific ones, we're actually actively monitoring those and assessing those and seeing if there's if they're in compliance, if they're not in compliance, if those agreements need to be updated to address new issues that weren't present or evident when we entered into the agreement with them prior. So we're always constantly involved in mitigation and compliance monitoring. For purposes of entities that we don't have agreements with, again, we're always reviewing the national security and law enforcement risks associated with entities having an FCC authorization, whether we reviewed it or not, or whether we entered into an agreement with them or not. The, the Section 214, when it talks about whether it's in the public interest, also talks about whether it's in the continuing public interest of the United States. So that is always going to be an ongoing endeavor. And so that is something that we always look at. Last thing I'd like to talk to you a little bit about or talk with you about is mitigation monitoring. You just mentioned that there's continuing ongoing compliance monitoring. Can you tell us a little bit about the staffing and resources you have at the Department of Justice and perhaps the rest of Team Telecom to monitor compliance and what efforts you're making in that space. Sure. So I'll talk about it from a DOJ NSD's perspective. We have a deputy chief who's in charge of compliance monitoring and enforcement of compliance, Eric Johnson, uh, who recently joined us, who you know. And he's uh, has a team that he's building out whose responsibility is going to be to monitor and enforce compliance across the different foras that we're involved in from a foreign investment, you know, review perspective. So 
from a team telecom perspective, I mentioned, if and when we identify risks that we believe can be mitigated, we enter into those mitigation agreements. Those mitigation agreements then become conditions on their FCC license so that they have to be in compliance with that mitigation agreement in order to still continue to have their FCC license. And so that entails annual reports they have to provide, any updates they have to provide, any notices I mentioned before, if they're going to use different equipment or different managed service providers, they need to give us notice. And so we assess those on an ongoing basis. Eric's team are going to be focused laser-like on those issues. And then from there, you know, if there are issues that need to be addressed, a lack of compliance, um, other issues, that's when the enforcement aspect of it comes into play. And that might entail us petitioning the FCC to terminate the license because the entity is no longer in compliance with its mitigation agreement. So hopefully that provides kind of a bit of context of where what compliance and monitoring is. 100%. Very helpful. One quick question. I know I said that was the last <laughs> question, but one quick question is, as a follow-up there. Has Team Telecom ever made a recommendation that the FCC revoke an existing? Team Telecom has not. What we have done is we have made petitions to the FCC, which are the equivalent of recommendations to the FCC, FCC, that they terminate licenses of entities that we have agreements with because those entities are no longer in business, are not complying with the agreement, other issues that might come up. And we have petitioned the FCC in the past to terminate those licenses. So there's a process in place to have those communications with the FCC. Correct. And that could be applied. Correct. In a different circumstance. So to be clear, when we requested the FCC terminate a license, the term terminate implies that the entity has a mitigation agreement with us, right? So we're saying to the FCC, they're not complying with this agreement. Now, the FCC uses broader language of terminate and or revoke. But technically, if we have an agreement with them and we petition to terminate, it's because they're not complying with the agreement. If we don't have an agreement with them and for whatever reason, some issue was to arise, that would be a separate issue and that would be under a revocation. And that would be an assessment of whether it's still in the public interest for an entity to have a 214 or a 310 license. So that's just some technicalities. Thank you so much. First of all, it's really been great to see you and to spend some time with you again. And the information that you've provided us during this discussion is enormously valuable. In the private sector, we don't often get the opportunity to hear directly from government officials regarding emerging issues and the current thinking regarding some of these really complex issues. So your willingness to come here and have this conversation and share with us both the history of Team Telecom, but also the future uh, is enormously helpful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate you having me here and uh, having an opportunity to talk about some of these very interesting and complex issues. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening.